0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm editor Candace Gibson joined by staff writer Jane McGrath. Hi Candace. Jane, this morning I was having a bagel for breakfast and I got to thinking about how, um, you know, it's a treat for me. It's sort of a luxury every now and then on the way to work, I'll stop at Einstein's and I'll grab a bagel. Sure, and yeah. You know, I don't really question where my bread is going to come from. I have a loaf at home. Maybe I'll stop <laughs> by the bagel shop. But for the people of France... Back around 1780, 1789 is when mm-hmm. things really took off. Bread was a huge point of contention because they didn't really have much.
1: That's true. They were suffering from some really bad harvests and economic depression in general. And uh, this was a problem. It means kind of a perfect storm sort of situation where um, not only were the people having the food issues, but the government was having
0: money issues mm-hmm. as well. And... We don't typically think of the plague and other massive diseases as a good thing, but they kind of were in the sense that they kept France's population in check, but during this point in time, everyone was really healthy, they were living longer, and all Mm -hmm. of a sudden there wasn't enough to go around. And There'd been a couple of kings in the House of Bourbon who'd screwed a lot of things up. We had um, Louis XIV, who was really excessive and had a lot of superfluous luxuries, and he didn't even like being in the middle of the dirtiness and squalor of Paris. So he built a castle called Versailles, I'm sure you've all heard of it, about, um, what was that, 12, 13 miles? That sounds about right. Uh, yeah. Away from the city, so that you mm-hmm. could have a retreat. And then Louis the Fifteenth came in, and he was more interested in being the boss of the bedroom than the boss of his, <laughs> his subjects. And mm-hmm. then Louis XVI, who we know, married Marie Antoinette, he was the one who famously said, you know, help us, God, we are too young to reign. And It's true. You know, if you Mm -hmm. look at our country today, we have a new president-elect who's going to be taking on a massive financial deficit and a couple of wars, and, you know, he's coming into a really hard position. And we could say that the same was pretty comparable for Louis XVI. Massive financial debt, unhappy subjects. That's true, and um, you can see the
1: contrast from then to now. Is that back then, the way they had it in France, anyway, was that the nobles and, and the upper people and the clergy didn't even have to pay taxes, and uh, and this is sort of contrary to our sensibilities now, where where the if the more money you have, the more money you owe to the country, basically, and this was. Part of the financial problems is that the more um, money problems they had, the more they wanted to tax people to, to raise money, but they could only tax the people who were suffering at this time. One important tax, I think it's uh, called the Gabel, um, if I'm pronouncing it right, right? Um, but it, it was a tax on salt, actually, which not only was you know, an added thing for food, but it was also very important for preserving food you know, back then before they'd had uh, refrigerators.
0: Yeah, and so people at this time, if they didn't have the salt to preserve their food, they didn't have enough flour for bread, they were foraging as best they could. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in urban areas like Paris, that wasn't working too well because there wasn't enough land to forage in. And in the outlying provinces, there was, you know, such severe winters and and hot summers that nothing was really working in anyone's favor. And so we see, like Jane said, the perfect storm Mm -hmm. and the beginnings of an uprising that would eventually blossom into the French Revolution. That's right. And another element of
1: that perfect storm is basically the ideas that were becoming more and more popular. Even among nobility, they were discussing these ideas brought up by Rousseau and Voltaire of equality and and liberty. And um,
0: basically, when all these things came together, a revolution bubbled up. And what's funny about these ideas and these Enlightenment thinkers is that these were very popular subjects and salons, especially people would get together and the people who had the time to really sit around and contemplate the universe and mm-hmm. really to start thinking that aspects of their life weren't fair. But the poor people really didn't have the time and luxuries for this. But That's I think true. there were people in the middle class and the upper middle class and maybe even parts of the upper class who were looking out for them. And there were certain members who really started to contemplate the idea of equality and that it should be available to everyone. And one thing that was really sort of strange mm. was um, this idea of equality in death. And we have to remember that during this time, a lot of middle age ideas still permeated the justice system in Europe. And so when people of a lower class were sentenced to death... It was done by scary things like quartering or, or being burned or being drowned. It wasn't brown, yeah, and no. it, it hurt, <laughs> I bet. It hurt a lot, I'm sure. We can't speak from personal experience, but... um Whereas the nobles, on the other hand, they deserved a, a more humane death and less painful. Yeah, a, a gentleman's death. So yeah, They were usually beheaded, which, mm-hmm. again, we're not saying that doesn't hurt. We really <laughs> imagine that it does, but it was seen as more humane and... A faster death, at least. yeah. <laughs> and something really interesting came out of this whole debate about being equal in death. And that was the creation of a a death device by a member of the um, Constitutional Assembly named... Joseph Guillotin. That's right. And he,
1: um, there were other machines similar to it in other European countries at the time, but he um, kind of perfected it and introduced it to France, and it became synonymous with the French Revolution because of the ideas of equality bubbling up there and because of the, eventually, although he didn't quite foresee this, the massive killings, and, and they would end up using this death machine, basically, a lot during the following years.
0: And so it's ironic is that what was intended to be a humanitarian device was eventually repurposed into a death machine. And Mm -hmm. that's the crazy thing about the guillotine. And um, we were joking earlier can you can you really say if if it hurts or if it doesn't because it is so quick and doctors today have done some research into the guillotine and they look at how it actually kills someone and you know they talk about you know the severing of of the skin and Mm -hmm. then the bone and then the spinal cord and then the brain death that results and people today look at it and say i bet it hurts a lot yeah it's not considered quite as humanitarian as it was back then no not at all and A really interesting rumor that sort of sprung up around the guillotine and the concept of decapitation is that after someone's decapitated, they're still sort of alive, at least for a couple seconds. Yeah, for a little while. There are legends surrounding
1: one of the famous um, people who were killed, uh, Charlotte Corday. Um, Legend is that the executioner actually picked up her head afterwards and it actually looked at him. I think indignantly
0: yeah, even I so I would imagine you <laughs> look like hey come on and Charlotte Corday was famous because she was from one of the outlying provinces in France mm-hmm. she was she wasn't a revolutionary or she was to a certain extent but she was essentially um a provincial girl who had been hearing about all of the riots in Paris, and yeah. she was blaming everything on this one journalist named Murat. That's true. And he was quite, I mean, you could say he was responsible
1: for a lot of the violence. He intentionally instigated all the, all this violence through his uh, propaganda
0: and his writings. Definitely, and she knew exactly where to find him. He had a really bad skin condition that required him to soak in a tub for Mm -hmm. a couple of hours a day, and she came to Paris with the intent of finding him and killing him. It's kind of ironic trying to prevent the violence by killing this guy.
1: Yeah, but I I was
0: thinking clearly during the French Revolution. (laughs) And it
1: kind of backfired on her, right? Because he ended up being the martyr out of that situation, and people were celebrating when she was
0: guillotined. Exactly, and that's how the French Revolution was. You know, a hero one day, uh, a martyr the next, Absolutely hated the next day. It was, it was crazy, these these turning tides. But, you know, we could go on and on about some of these, the motley crew of the French Revolution, as I like to call them. But just to get down to basics, I mean, we know who the main players are. We've got Louis Sixteenth, and we've got his wife, Marie Antoinette. And there was so much ire directed toward her. She was a total spendthrift, mm-hmm. and she was expected to produce an heir, to the throne. She hadn't done that yet. Yeah. And um, the people of France were just furious with both of them. And there were
1: scandals surrounding everything that she did, right? Like... Um, you wrote about these uh, sort of scandals that sh- that happened around her in one of the articles on the site uh, where she would say, let them eat cake. And uh, she was having supposedly affairs as well, and having just
0: in general just this extravagant lifestyle. Yeah, and some of the rumors surrounding her, like the whole let them eat cake thing, we know today that she didn't actually say that, but she right. did project an air of You know, carelessness. And Thomas Jefferson, whom, you know, obviously I have to refer to him in every single podcast we do, (laughs) he apparently said about her that if someone had shut that lady up in a convent, the French Revolution would never have happened. He makes a good point. (laughs) He does. Yeah, and he was kind of, he was a relative sympathizer with the French Revolution. Is that right? Uh, Yeah, because the French Revolution used as its model the American Revolution. Right. And I think that um, when we look at the Declaration of Independence and the ideals of life, liberty, and the pursuit of Happiness, and then we look for the parallels in the French Revolution. You know, the sort of rallying cry there was um, liberty, equality, and brotherhood, or mm-hmm. liberté, égalité, and um, fraternité. Right. I, I don't profess to be a native French speaker. You may have guessed I'm <laughs> from the south, but um, that that was the general governing idea, and it was important because no one had ever thought to go up against the king, and people in general wanted to love the king. You know, he was sort of the the father of the country, and he was supposed to be looking out for everyone. And yeah, and, and there, they they kind of kept him around for a little while, even after they, they did. yeah, yeah. And there was affection for him, and even when their children Marie Antoinette and Louis' children were born, there was genuine affection and celebration for the birth of the new king. But. Sure. When things, again, things started going poorly, they tried to get the king on board with this idea of a new sort of constitution, in which mm-hmm. there would be power more evenly divided among the classes. Jane was saying that the clergy and the upper classes, the aristocracy, they had all the voting power, essentially. They were maybe 3% of the population. They were making the laws that governed everyone else. and. Louis was basically pigeonholed into hiring a finance minister to sort everything out because things had gotten so financially messy, and he hired a man named Jacques Necker.
1: Yeah, and this guy became pretty important for doing something that hadn't been done in 175 years, and that was calling together uh, the Estates General. Um, And this was this group, obviously the first and second estates were the clergy and the nobles who had the most power, and the third estate um, at these meetings um, began to rise up and demanding, uh, make just making uh, demands of the king that he wouldn't give in to.
0: And one of the most important members of the Third Estate was a lawyer named Maximilian Robespierre, and he became a very outspoken advocate of the lower classes. and. People really respected Robespierre. He had a lot of really salient things to say, and he was actually called the incorruptible because he seemed so ethical and so wise in everything that he did.
1: Yeah, and so, that ended
0: up not being quite true in the no, end. But at least at the beginning, it seemed like his heart was in the right place. And so the Estates General continued on with their work, and they were, you know, they actually included members of the upper class to come and meet with them because they weren't, you know, ardent. Uh, supporters of the group because Mm -hmm. obviously they saw their power being slowly cut off. But some would come, they'd all meet, they'd have their assemblies, and then one day they went to the palace to meet as usual, Mm -hmm. and the doors were shut. And in reality, what was going on is that someone in the palace was preparing the room for an address that the king would give later. Oh, wow. So they weren't shutting them out? No, not exactly. I I think that this has been interpreted in many ways throughout history. But I think the general accord is they were not being bolted out. It was just an unfortunate timing. Yeah. Either way, though, they believed that they were
1: being bolted out. And
0: that's all they needed to believe. (laughs) So they went to the closest room they could find, which was an indoor tennis court. And they made an oath that they would not rest until France had a new constitution.
1: That's right. And this seems to be a very good step um, in the people's um, pursuit of of more power. But actually, um, by like the next month, the people were getting so frustrated, they didn't think that peaceful reform was quite possible.
0: And so they ended up storming the Bastille. And they went there to get guns and gunpowder and essentially yeah. show Louis that they were not playing around anymore. And I think a really famous... Anecdote from the French Revolution is that Louis was out hunting the day that that happened, and when he got back in, one of his advisors told him what had happened, and he asked, is it a revolt? And his advisor said, no, sire, it's a revolution. Like, it was a big deal, and I don't think Louis comprehended the gravity of the situation. And on that day... The guards were slaughtered, prisoners Mm -hmm. were set free. And what's more the Bastille was this fortress, this medieval fortress. And it was a symbol to the people of the king's corruptibility because there were prisoners kept there who were convicted of crime sort of outside the bounds of common law. And no Hmm. one knew what happened inside this prison. But there were awful tales that people were tortured and maimed and terrible things went on. So the people of Paris just started knocking it down Brick by brick by brick.
1: And they certainly made their point with uh, the storming of the Bastille. It was a very dramatic episode.
0: And so it seemed that the people of Paris had united. Louis was going to be forced into going along with the new constitution. Things were going pretty well until there were rumors swirling around town, uh, courtesy of Marat's crazy newspaper. Well, Mm -hmm. I shouldn't say crazy. That's not fair. Um uh, <laughs> <laughs> courtesy of his newspaper in which he broadcasts all this propaganda that the king and his courtiers had stomped on the tricolor which was a flag it's mm-hmm. still the flag of france today it's the red and blue of france separated by the white of the house of bourbon which represented the royalty anyway rumors that they had stomped on the flag they had desecrated the symbol of the revol- the symbol of the revolution certainly incensed the people and at this time, the women of Paris really took action, and they stormed Versailles. This time, mm-hmm. they went for bread, and they went for Marie Antoinette's head. That's right, and they just barely missed her. Yeah. Uh, she
1: had just <laughs> fled from her room when they when they stormed in, and uh, but they eventually got what they wanted. They got what the uh, this king to to sign away the Declaration of the Rights of Man, and which basically, you know power away from him significantly. And they actually uh, moved uh, the uh, royal family to Tuileries, is that how? Tuileries, Tuileries. Tuileries. The Tuileries.
0: in the heart of Paris. So okay. they were under lock and key. And then there were rumors, again, that Marie Antoinette was plotting with her relatives in mm-hmm. Austria to take control of Paris. Yeah. And they thought, well, you know, there's still a chance that the royal family can reclaim power. And Marie Antoinette's lover, Hans Axel von Fersen, actually orchestrated an escape for the royal family, and they nearly made it to Austria. They were captured in Viren, which was just miles from the Austrian border. So Louis was brought back.
1: Mm -hmm. And this made
0: him look worse, I'm sure, as trying to escape. Obviously, he didn't look like he was going to cooperate. No. And so any ire toward him was magnified a million times, and he was put on trial. And at this point, he wasn't even referred to as King Louis anymore. He was called by his surname, Capet, which actually wasn't even his surname. He was Bourbon. So they got his name wrong, too. you know, to add <laughs> insult to injury. And this is when we see the National Assembly, which had drafted the Declaration of the Rights of Man, they had drafted this constitution. They seem unified until this point. Mm-hmm. And then when you have a monarch on trial and you have the extremists who say hey, want to put him to death like a common person and you have some people who still have some loyalty to the crown. Yeah. It was split. And there was frustrations at this time as well. Keeping the king alive obviously
1: might encourage um, other countries with, that were monarchies at the time to go in and restore power because um, the king was obviously uh, he, when he was writing to other powers trying to get help. He was saying like, look, what's happening here. The same thing could happen in your country, and so if you help me out, you know, we can we can stop this sort of revolutionary fever going on.
0: And that certainly was a factor. And I believe it was the Duke of Prussia who wrote the revolutionaries the letter later published and one. Of the newspapers, maybe Courtesy Marat, that if anything happened to Louis, they would come in and burn Paris to the ground. And that was all that a lot of people needed to hear. And so Louis was convicted, put to death, and mm. that was the end of him. So Louis's dad, the National Convention, is a split, we know, over his death. And now mm. we see a new uprising. And we should mention that these different factions did have specific names. The moderates were the Girondins. And then the radical members were the Jacobins. And, and that's
1: where Robespierre was. So he was the leader of that yes. group,
0: right? Okay. Do y'all remember Robespierre? You're about to see him get really corrupt. <laughs> that's a side note. Anyway, so then the other group we see emerge is the sans culottes, And that translates into those who do not wear breeches or those without breeches. And these were the artisans of, of Paris. And um, they weren't walk, they weren't walking around without pants. They were walking around without the little knee shorts. <laughs> so and they were actually wearing
1: longer pants. They were wearing longer pants. Okay, Yeah,
0: because yeah, the custom was to wear breeches and, you know, cute little tights and the dinky little buckle shoes and all the other things that sweet little (laughs) pre-revolutionary France people wore. And these were people who were ruling the local areas, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Yes. So we start to see Power again shifting, contracting, and the ideals of the revolution in the first place, or the ideals of the reform that people originally wanted, they start to get really muddied mm-hmm. and confused because we know that at first the people had wanted sort of a, a constitutional monarchy. Well, obviously that wasn't going to happen now because yeah, the monarch the was, was dead. dead. Yeah. So, who was going to rule? That was a really important question.
1: And this is when Robespierre re- really gained in power. And uh, he, obviously, he sort of filled the void of power at this time. And um he was able
0: to solidify it by killing a lot of his political enemies at the time. And he would eventually go on to condone these killings publicly at first, like the events of the September Massacre, mm-hmm. he sort of turned his head away, and he thought, you know, well, if these are the people of Paris. They're the ones who are acting like like beasts and, and killing their fellow countrymen. I'm not really a part of this. But later on, like during the Great Terror and the Great Fear, mm-hmm. he himself would compose lists of counter-revolutionaries who would be put to death. And it's important to remember at this time that There was really not a lot of peace in France. You know, people were fearing every day that they would be accused of counter-revolutionary activity. It was like a witch hunt, really.
1: Yeah, that's right. And they did have some semblance of of justice when they tried to institute the revolutionary tribunals to try these people who were accused of of anti-revolutionary activity.
0: But if you look at the stats, I think about 9 out of 10 people who were tried were found guilty and killed. And one of those was Marie Antoinette. That's right she wasn't going to be around for too much longer. She continued to be suspected of plotting with Austria to overthrow the revolutionaries, and she was put on trial. And one of the most poignant charges that came against her was molestation of her own son and... Marie Antoinette, as we know, she had been, you know, sort of a twit. No one really liked her. She had her, her faults. She had I don't thoughts. know about that one. But no, and that was absolutely not true at yeah. all. It was mm-hmm. a horrible, salacious rumor started, and she sort of hung her head when all the other charges against her were read. But when that one was read, that was when she spoke up and said no, and she implored the other women in the room to sympathize with her and to really think about how they would feel if they were charged with such a terrible thing. Yeah, I can't imagine. And she wound their sympathy for an instant and then like that, it was gone. Oh, wow. Yeah, and when Louis was put to death at the guillotine, he at least was driven up to the stand in mm-hmm. an enclosed cart. But she was driven in an open cart, a common criminal's cart, so people could throw things at her and spit and jeer. And So it seemed like the people hated her even more than they hated the king, I guess. They did. They did. And when she went up to the stand, I think people really wanted to see her cry and prostrate herself, and that didn't happen at all. She was really? very dignified until the moment that she died. Wow. Pretty impressive. I couldn't do that. <laughs> I, I know. But... As much as the people wanted Marie Antoinette dead, and as much as her death symbolized for the people of France and for the revolution itself, it it wasn't enough. The revolution still was not over. That's
1: right. And as you said, Robespierre was coming up with with lists of people that that he felt needed executed, and eventually he ended up executing. Uh, one who used to be his ally, uh, Danton, um, and he was the leader of, of the opposing, uh, party with different, um, ideas for where the revolution should be taken.
0: And that's what was so crazy about the splits and the factions of the National Convention is that they kept splitting and factions that had split off, you know, mm-hmm. split in and of themselves. And one of the biggest things that was really upsetting the people here in this assembly was that they feared so much that outside countries would attack France, that they went to war to keep yeah. their borders clear. And that meant that there weren't enough people in the city to quell any violent uprisings that occurred. So people were either for the French Revolutionary Wars, they were for, you know, fighting in the cities. No one knew where their affiliations really were. And Danton and Pierre had been eye to eye all along. But then Ribespierre one day said, nope, that's enough, Danton must die. And when he went to the guillotine, I think he famously said... Um, I regret that I go before that rat Robespierre. So <laughs> he knew that Robespierre would. Would come soon. Yeah, and you can
1: see the public opinion is starting to get um, a little against uh, Robespierre at the time because Robespierre started looking a little crazy. Um, he actually, a few months after he executed Danton, he uh, he started this festival of the Supreme Being, and he um, had this papier-mâché mountain um, that he he paraded on through the streets of, of Paris, and he looked like he was making himself a god. Really, he had, this sort of cult that he started was sort of it was uh, a deist cult and. And he, he just wanted um, morality. Um, as much as he wanted to get rid of Christianity in France, he thought that morality was pretty essential to to a, a civil society. Um, so he's tried to unite the people with this Supreme Being Festival when really it backfired on him. And people are like, he's crazy. We've got to get him out of here.
0: And he had done some other extremist things, too. He tried after the death of Louis and toward the shift away from the monarchy to really, really rid France of any feelings at all that it may have had toward the monarchy or toward Christianity or mm-hmm. even toward time. That's right. And what was I found fascinating,
1: I didn't know this until I started researching for this podcast, actually, was the idea of um, changing the concept of time through the, what they called the revolutionary calendar. And the, they basically reconstructed the days and the hours. And basically what they did um they still had twelve months in a year, but they ended up renaming everything. And they ended up taking out the seven day week. And instead each month would have three uh decades, decades, I don't know how it's pronounced, but um three uh periods of ten days. And uh so this, if you think about it, um is no longer a seven day week. It would be a nine day week with one, or sorry, a 10-day week with one day of rest and um, nine days of work. And so this was sort of an attempt to get rid of the, uh, the Christianity in the country so they would no longer have this sense of Sundays with the Catholic Church or any other sort of
0: Catholic or uh, Christian sects. Yeah, so Sunday being the proverbial day of worship and rest was mm-hmm. phased out completely with the hope that people wouldn't even recognize that this day was meant to be Sunday.
1: That's right. And they actually, they tried to constitute a new clock. However, I'm not really sure how this would work as they put extra seconds in the day from what we have. Um But at least what I read is that the, each day had 10 hours. Um Each hour had 10 minutes or 100 minutes and each minute had 100 seconds which you can see how this dramatically, the the revolution, the whole sense of it is trying to dramatically change how people
0: thought about everything. And the people who are the masterminds behind these really radical changes are beginning to lose sight of what's going on in Mm -hmm. the streets. And meanwhile, the people in the streets are harping on the bread again. You know, where's our bread? We're still going hungry. Nothing has changed. The only thing it really has is that we don't hate Louis. We just live in a constant state of fear that we're going to be called a counter-revolutionary, that could be something like, you know, bad-mouthing group's Pierre, or it could be something like plotting against the revolution, or even just calling someone madame or monsieur instead of citoyen, which meant citizen. So really, it was time for a revolution to come to an end. It hadn't accomplished what it set out to accomplish. And there was a quick... And succinct way to do this, and that was to kill Robespierre and all of his allies. And that didn't quite end it. They ended up uh, setting up a directory after after that, right?
1: And um, that didn't quite satisfy anybody's needs. Like There were two um, opposing views, and this sort of tried to um, straddle the middle, and it ended up satisfying no one.
0: And so they called in one of the biggest war heroes of the French Revolutionary Wars and that was good old Napoleon Bonaparte. So he came in and he was supposed to reunite France and he did restore religion. So that mm-hmm. was something that he did accomplish with the people of France and he did restore, you know, a semblance of of order and and there was food and there were resources for them. But as we know, he went on to become a dictator. That's right. And he wouldn't call himself king, obviously. They didn't have good ideas towards a
1: king. But he did end up being what was called the first consul, and I think eventually the emperor.
0: So, obviously, France had a long way to go before it really reached the ideals of the revolution, if it ever did. And that's something that you can pursue more for yourself when you read how the French Revolution worked on HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com.